Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light. Each week I speak to leading thinkers from around the world about Robert Menzies, his life, his era and his enduring legacy. Hello, and today on the Afternoon Light podcast, I am talking to Patrick Mullins, who is a Canberra-based writer, and uh, of the three books he has published so far, one is Tiberius with a Telephone, which is a biography of former Australian Prime Minister William McMahon, and it won the Douglas Stewart Prize for nonfiction at the 2020 New South Wales Premier's Literary Awards, and we are going to talk about William McMahon or Billy McMahon today. So welcome, Patrick, to Afternoon Light. Thanks so much for having me, Georgina. Great to be here. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. We were just starting to talk before about the process of writing this biography of Billy McMahon. Why did you choose to write a biography of Billy McMahon, firstly? The big reason was that nobody had done it before. Um, Good reason. Yeah. You want to blaze a path through a field not yet opened. Uh, And nobody had done a book on on McMahon. And on one hand, I thought that there was a reason why, namely his kind of ignominious reputation. But at the same time, I thought that for somebody younger, um, like myself, I'm I'm 34, um, who wasn't alive when McMahon was prime minister or even when he was a politician, that there was kind of space to take a look again at him and try to answer some of the questions that his career threw up. In particular, if his reputation is that he was this hapless, leaking, manipulative, semi-incompetent kind of prime minister, then how on earth was he a minister in the government for almost 20 years prior to that? So there was a kind of question there that had to be asked and answered. And I thought too, especially as I got into it, that McMahon's life gave a way to understand a great swathe of Australian political history in the mid-20th century. Um, McMahon was closely associated with lots of different causes and different events and and had kind of a a different perspective on them. And I thought that by understanding McMahon's life, using the vantage point that he afforded, I could portray a picture of Australia. And over the those 80 or so years, the first eight years of the the 20th century. So that was kind of one of the big reasons I wanted to do it. And um, answering that question became the mission of the biography and I think sustained my writing it over the five years that it took. Um, and, and I say sustained because every time I'd go and do an interview with people about it, about McMahon, almost invariably they would kind of look at me with some kind of shock and horror. They'd have to say, what's <laughs> wrong with you? Why would you do that? What, what possesses somebody? Having some of that kind of that idea and that belief in the value of what I was doing was quite important. Yeah, so tell me about McMahon the person uh, and um, I think it's it's interesting some people have commented that he is part of a, a group of of political leaders of prime ministers who lose a parent at a very young age and that has a formative influence on them but develops them into a certain type of personality but t- tell me about this childhood which obviously involved losing his mother at a very young age. Yeah so McMahon was born in 1908 um, his father's family were kind of working-class Irish Catholics who became wealthy thanks to the creation of of a carrier's trade. McMahon's grandfather, James Butty McMahon, created this this carrier's business and became both wealthy as well as very unsympathetic to labour causes. Um, He crossed swords with Billy Hughes quite a few times. He actually physically fought um, strikers and labourers 
Um, I thought you were going to say physically fought Billy Hughes. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been quite quite the spectacle. <laughs> I don't know who had taken that fight. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and his, his father was a solicitor um, and kind of something of a wayward son, at least according to McMahon, who drank, was a bit of a drunk and a gambler and so on. Um, and his father married a woman named Mary Ellen Walder, whose family were kind of Church of England, business people, very upstanding. Um, as you say, his mother, however, died very young. McMahon's mum died when he was nine years old. Um, and in the years prior to that, she'd been quite sickly with tuberculosis. And one of the effects of that was that McMahon and all his siblings were sent away from the mum and dad. They were staffed out to relatives and brought up by them. And they were shifted from house to house and split up and so on. And this, as I say, as you, as you suggest, aligns with a pattern in Australian politics of people, political leaders who lose a parent at a young age and who don't have the kind of security and constant assurance of love that having a stable family home provides. And the theory that kind of evolves from that is that those people seek to find that love later in the security and the embrace of voters. So positions of power in particular and acclaim. Um, McMahon, obviously, as I say, didn't have that kind of emotional comfort when he was a young man, that emotional security. Um, his mother died when he was nine. His elder brother died when he was 11. His father died when he was 18. However, at the same time, McMahon's childhood was materially comfortable because he lived with his aunt and uncle, and it was from them that he absorbed a lot of the kind of non-labour orthodoxies and beliefs. And perhaps most crucially, to um, he converted from the Catholicism of his father's family to the Anglicanism of the Walders, and that became really important to his eventual entry to politics in 1949. Yeah, and so he's in 1949 part of the quite a, an influx of MPs on the non-Labor side, all, of course, under the banner of the relatively new, only five years old by that stage, Liberal Party. That kind of defines him too, as they're, they're the, new, the new guard, aren't they, coming into um, to the parliament? Absolutely. Um, I mean, the 49ers are a fascinating kind of class for the parliament because they came in fired by the resolve from the World War II. Um, I think one of the did a recording, I remember he said, talking about how he'd left army service at the end of World War II and been told and kind of understood this collective thing that all of them needed to contribute to make a new world, to make a country that they wanted for the future. Uh, and so a lot of these guys came in 1949 with a horror of socialism and communism, um, a belief very much in non-Labour Party principles, in particular liberty, uh, and, and the value of business. And McMahon in, in that cohort is, is a really interesting figure because he, as a former lawyer and partner at Allen Allen Hemsley, Australia's oldest law firm, had developed contacts and networks all over the place and had a great understanding of Australian business and commerce. So he came to Parliament really well connected, really well credentialed, um, with all of the same kind of ideas, but also a great heritage within politics. Samuel Walder was within the United Australia Party, um, Big Man's mentor at Allen, Colin Norman Cowper, was a figure in the UAP as well. And McMahon had built up, in particular, a really great source of support in the press in Sir Frank Packer. Uh, McMahon was one of the original subscribers to um, an investment that Packer made, from which came the Australian Women's Weekly, from which in turn came Australian Consolidated Press, from which in turn came those great stable of newspapers that um, Packer would wield in service to the Liberal and National Party causes. So... Obviously, he becomes Prime Minister 1971, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But 
But his political career from 49 to 71 was pretty substantial, despite I think there'd be fairly significant differences between Robert Menzies and Billy McMahon. He's elevated to the ministry by Menzies and, and, you know, you can't avoid his his talent and his connections, I guess. How did that political career unfold? Was it was it smooth and seamless or was it troubled? <laughs> Absolutely. Definitely not smooth and seamless. Um, there were quite a few occasions where McMahon was in the frame for the chop. Um, and and it's worth saying, I think it's one of, one of the things worth saying is actually exploring how he got first into the ministry mm. in 1951. After the 51 election, Menzies announced that he was going to expand the ministry by one spot and he would announce the identity of the person filling that spot as soon as enabling legislation had been passed. So in the period between Menzies announcing that he was going to appoint this minister, the passage of the the legislation um, left this crucial window where speculation could emerge about who was going to be the new minister. Very quickly, the consensus formed that it was going to be somebody from New South Wales, it was going to be somebody from Sydney, and it was going to have to be someone from the 1949 class of parliamentarians. Also very quickly, consensus emerged that that was going to be Fred Osborne, who, like McMahon, was a lawyer and also based in Sydney, also had come into Parliament in 1949, um, and also from a neighbouring electorate in Sydney. Um, Osborne heard enough about this rumour that he actually went and tried to get it confirmed, and he all but got it confirmed. However, on the day that the new minister was announced, it wasn't Osborne, it was meant McMahon. And it was at that point that Osborne heard of a deputation of MPs who had gone to see Eric Harrison, the senior Liberal Party figure in New South Wales, and who had complained to Harrison that Osborne, the supposed candidate for this ministry, was a martinet, that he was too arrogant, that they didn't have confidence in him. So Harrison conveyed those concerns to Menzies, who in turn decided, though surprised, to appoint McMahon instead. And Osborne, hearing this, went and had news of this deputation confirmed from Harrison. And he asked Harrison who was in the deputation. Was McMahon one of them? And Harrison looked down his nose and said yes. So effectively, McMahon's entry to the ministry in the first place was aided by his willingness to bring down a colleague, to handicap um, somebody with whom he had a bit of a friendship. Uh, When McMahon first drove down to Parliament in Canberra after the 1949 election, he actually invited Osborne to come with him um, so they could see what the house was like. And Osborne never made any secret about deep kind of hurt and anguish that had resulted from being kneecapped in this way. Mm. Um, But I think what that affair shows is that McMahon was willing to call on support from higher-ups and that he was willing as well to kind of do anything in the service of his own advancement through the ranks. Um, That said, there were many times, as I mentioned before, where he was in the frame for the chop. Um, After the 1954 election, he supposedly would have been cast out of the ministry, but for the efforts of Jack McEwen. And there were quite a few occasions with Menzies where he had run-ins over leaking and over government policy um, and may well have been given the chop there but he didn't. He survived each time. He was a survivor, clearly. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> um, how, how do you think he did survive? I mean, Menzies presumably was displeased by the leaking. It seems to me that McMahon on policy issues always thought he was right and, you know, was prepared to undermine the government he was in in order to, to prove the point. Um, Not a great yeah, it's, it's a, 
You wouldn't say so. There are a couple of things about McMahon on one hand that seemed to have put him in, the, in a bad spot. Um, he certainly was never, I think, deferential to Menzies in the way that you know, he was never a sycophant. Um, and any kind of public comments that McMahon made about Menzies, it was always kind of, yes, he was a good politician, but Labor were no good at this point and you know, he kind of needed to be flattered a lot. Um, and there were recollections uh, from contemporaries that McMahon and Menzies had a vexed relationship. Um, one of them talked about McMahon sitting across from Menzies at the cabinet table, propped up on some cushions, complaining, Prime Minister, why do you always pick on me? <laughs> um, and there's enough contemporaneous documents around as well to confirm you know, Menzies had a signed confession from McMahon that he had leaked and Menzies kept this in his safe in his office and said, I'll use this if you ever displease me or do this again, you'll be out. Um, that said, though, McMahon had several strengths that I think really were important for the government. One of them was that, that knowledge and, and business networks and contacts in Sydney and New South Wales. Suspicion of Menzies and doubt about his political abilities was always most marked and concentrated in Sydney. Um, people who know about his career will know that there was that rallying cry, you'll never win with Menzies, yeah. that always originated and, and was most concentrated in Sydney. So McMahon kind of having contacts and support within the Sydney business community kind of helped to negate that, helped, helped to keep that side of politics on, on side. Um, in another vein, McMahon had the contacts within the, within the press, the Daily Telegraph, Frank Packer. So he was a source of alliances. He was also a good source of money for the party. He could fundraise pretty well. Um, and in another vein, he was actually quite an effective minister. In all of the portfolios he held, he could argue his corner against much more experienced, much more influential figures, um, and he would often rarely take no for an answer. And some of the time, the arguments that he presented were actually quite prescient. When the Suez Canal crisis erupted, McMahon argued against Australia getting too heavily involved. Um, in the 1950s, McMahon led reform of the waterfront. It's always a great way to get ahead within the Liberal Party. Um, yes. But McMahon did that and he did it quite well, um, with a plum, you might even say. So... Yes, he had a vexed relationship with Menzies, but at the same time, he was a formidable figure within the Menzies government, influential, able to act his corner, even if distrusted and disliked by so many of his colleagues. So Menzies couldn't ignore his talents, which were obviously, you know, they were evident and, uh, and his connections and his fundraising capabilities. But tell me, how would you describe McMahon's worldview and his political beliefs, which, as I was saying before, I think differed, differed in some ways from Menzies. Yeah, McMahon's, McMahon is unusual among politicians in this period for giving somewhat detailed exposition of his political beliefs. Um, he presented a paper about them in, in I think, 1954. Um, and he, he kind of, on one hand, he was always very careful to acknowledge that political activity and ideology has to bend to pragmatism. You have to acknowledge reality to expediency. Um, his big belief, however, um, honed by his experience as a young man, honed by the orthodoxies and teachings in his own home and from his study of economics, were that the individual was valuable above the value of the state. So the individual's ability to drive and innovate was really important and had to be safeguarded. Um, he believed that power should be distributed broadly and that free will was important. And so therefore liberal democracy and liberal democratic institutions like parliament were paramount for, in, for safeguarding individual liberty. And I point that out because in some respects his beliefs were formed 
in opposition to communism and socialism. Mm. Um, and he was always really important. He always kind of caveated that. As I say, though, he always talked about the importance of pragmatism. He called liberalism an opportunity more than a way. Um, and he said that the flexibilities that liberalism offered were its big strengths. One of the key things where McMahon differed from many others was his adoption of free trade mm. beliefs and policies. Um, this is a fault line in Australian politics that goes back to pre-Federation, and we can talk about it in simplistic terms as being a state-based difference. McMahon was from Sydney, long the home of free trade policies, um, and many of his predecessors were from Victoria. Menzies, Holt, um, you know, these guys were from Victoria where protection and advocacy for protection were considerable. So when McMahon was appointed to the Treasury, first of all, in 1966, after Menzies' retirement, you know, that represented a new moment in how that debate was going to be had. And over the next couple of years, McMahon um, fought that debate and, and waged a war in some respects in a way that is much to his credit, uh, even if the methods were not necessarily. Yeah, and that, and that is, um, I think, something worth reflecting on, these two traditions in Australian liberalism, one coming out of Victoria you know, with its sort of base in Alfred Deakin and, and the other coming out of New South Wales with its base in George Reid, uh, both Prime Ministers of Australia, both leaders of parties that, that go on to become one of the sort of founding forces of the Liberal Party in 44. But the, those two strands on the on those economic issues had quite divergent opinions. And, and then you see as, as time moves on, as the you know, Liberal Party and um, it, the key players change and evolve the the fault lines there are always fault lines they're not necessarily over free trade or economics they might start to become over over social issues or or the like but you know those two sides of the debate are you know conservative bent or a classical liberal bent a free trade bent or a, a protectionist bent um they they are a, an enduring feature through the decades even to this day there are there are fault lines within liberal party politics um tell mm. me tell me patrick uh, McMahon and Menzies, and we've talked a bit about this, but you, you say Menzies had this this signed confession in a desk drawer or something that he had from McMahon. It's in my book. Me. I've got a photograph of it in the book. <laughs> so it exists to this day. <laughs> Fantastic. But but aside from that sort of blackmail or <laughs> threat over overlaying the relationship. Um, tell me what what was their relationship like? Did they work well together? Did they complement each other? Did they loathe each other? <laughs> I think it would probably depend who you asked. Um, Menzies made no secret in in later years that he absolutely despised McMahon. He did that interview with David McNichol in I think nineteen seventy seven. Um, where he said that McMahon was the most characterless man to have ever been Prime Minister and a contemptible squirt. Uh, and there's enough evidence around to suggest that he thought as much of McMahon during the 1950s and 60s. Um, their relationship, though, went back to the 1930s. McMahon first encountered Menzies during litigation over some paper bags, reinforced paper bags used for carrying concrete. Um, and there's enough to suggest that McMahon was quite critical of Menzies then mm. and that he remained so forever afterward. He, he likened him to the headmaster and talked about how Menzies liked to predominate. Um, but certainly there, there's no shortage of, of sharp exchanges between the two men in their correspondence. Um, in the early 1950s, McMahon got mixed up in a controversy over the presentation of colours, um, and this was to do with the sectarian divide in Australia at the time. And there were threats that Menzies was going to sack him um, and, and not 
So they had a bit of a vexed relationship. Um, I wouldn't say they had one of, of great um, respect for one another. There was rumour at one point, McMahon claimed in his later years that Menzies had always wanted him to marry his daughter, Heather Henderson. Um, and I understand that Heather Henderson reacted very sharply when she heard about this, um, <laughs> perhaps understandably. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's quite curious. I'll have to ask Heather about that next time I speak to her. <laughs> so do you think on policy matters, though, they they differed much? I mean, obviously there was a difference of opinion on on style and integrity potentially? There were some differences. In Vietnam there was a, a significant difference. Um, the vital cabinet committee meeting where the decision was made to commit Australian forces to Vietnam, McMahon uh, disagreed with the line adopted by Menzies and Holt and Shane Partridge, I think it is, uh, and expressed real doubt about the American strategy. Uh, the Suez crisis, there was also a, a pronounced difference of opinion. But you'd have to say that they were pretty much on the same side. They were largely in agreement. Um, I think McMahon in his younger days, particularly the 1949-51 period, regarded himself as being part of something of a ginger group who kind of wanted to rough Menzies up and and nudge him along. And and it's worth saying that Menzies' control of the Liberal Party and his power and influence within it, especially in the first half of the 1950s, it was nowhere near as absolute as we might like to kind of look back on hindsight. He wasn't at that stage the grand old man of Australian politics. He was still um, a politician with, for whom some people held significant doubt about him. So the kind of dealing on a one-on-one basis um, was not necessarily just a subordinate and superior. There were moments of controversy and fights between them. Um, McMahon also liked to claim, though, that at one point Menzies tried to kind of encourage him to become deputy leader of the party. Um, and and Volta over Harold Holt, and then McMahon honourably refused. Um, we can take that, I think, with a grain of salt, maybe <laughs> a Dead Sea's worth of salt. But yeah. <laughs> so Menzies retires in uh, January 1966, and and Harold Holt succeeds him. Um, McMahon becomes his deputy, um, and then obviously we have Harold Holt very unfortunate demise on Cheviot Beach um, the following year. Tell me what happens, and this is obviously a, a, a big moment in the history of the coalition between the Liberal Party and what was then the Country Party. Uh, it's um, it's quite a quite an event. <laughs> yeah, sensational events, really, in, in so many respects. Yeah. Um, after Holt was presumed missing. John McEwen went to the Governor-General's Lord Casey's um, residence and had himself commissioned to be Prime Minister. Not acting Prime Minister, he was very clear, I'm going to be Prime Minister, um, but I'll, you know, give it up once the Liberal Party elect a new leader. And almost immediately afterward, McEwen let it be known that he would not support McMahon becoming leader Mm. of the Liberal Party and thereby Prime Minister. He effectively blackballed him. And the reason that McEwen gave to McMahon was very simple. I don't trust you. He told him that point blank. Um, McMahon sought many ways to try and overcome that veto, but it was worth noting that he didn't have the support within his own party to overcome it. Even within his own party, people didn't like him, didn't support him enough to say, to hell with the country party, we'll deal with this ourselves, Um, which speaks volumes about the regard in in which he was held. 
That allowed, however, John Gorton, Senator from Victoria, uh, to ultimately contest and win the ballot for the Liberal Party leadership and therefore the Prime Ministership. The other thing that it did, however, um, perhaps unfortunately for McEwen and his dislike of McMahon, was that it meant any kind of antagonism and depth of, of disregard for McMahon couldn't actually be manifest. McMahon couldn't be removed from the Deputy Party leadership of the Liberal Party. Um, and, and some of his rivals at the time, Paul Hasluck in particular, recognised that even though Harold Holt had drowned and even though McMahon had been vetoed for becoming Prime Minister, he was in some respects in a stronger position um, afterward than he was beforehand because the controversy and the poison and the vitriol between McEwen and McMahon was creating real, real problems for the government in those months beforehand. And a lot of the blame for it was directed toward McMahon, um, fairly or unfairly. So Holt's death and McEwen's actions vetoing him were, in some respects, a bit of a backfiring. Um, and it, it, it is also notable that a couple of years later, when McEwen retired, um, he didn't enforce a blackball, that veto, over McMahon anymore. He actually rescinded it and said it seems impossible, irresponsible to prevent the Liberal Party from electing the most experienced minister um, in, in, in his stead. So that is significant, I think. But th- these are seismic events at the time. Yeah. Um, really, really controversial events. Well, well, it's it's tantamount to the country party dictating the leadership of another political party. I mean, clearly it's coalition partner, but, but you know, to blackball a candidate. Um, well, so what were some of the things that had occurred between McEwen and McMahon to make McEwen loathe McMahon so much? You say he couldn't trust him, but... Were there instances where they had fallen out? I think over the, was it the primary industries portfolio that had some fallings out? Yeah. So, so back in the 1950s, um, 1956 to 58, McMahon had been appointed Minister for Primary Industries. Um, and you know, when we think of McMahon, he's a city slicker, he wears suede shoes. You're not going to think he's the kind of person um, who'd be taking a great interest or, or have much knowledge of agriculture. Um, and famously, there was a joke that went around that McMahon said he'd be all right because he had a plant on his balcony he knew how to water it so he'd be okay um and so the thought was that he would basically be a bit of patsy just sit there and do whatever he was told but in the portfolio McMahon actually showed himself to be quite a a strong minister um able to understand a brief and to act on it and he came very quickly into conflict with McEwen um, which is one of the reasons why in 1958 McMahon was very quickly shifted out of that portfolio uh, and it was taken back over by a country party member so that kind of laid the seeds for, for their dispute. But that became much more powerful in the 1960s when McMahon was treasurer. Um, McEwen was trying to hold the line of protectionist policies of keeping the tariffs up on a range of industries. But that position, that policy position at default, was coming under sustained attack from an enormous range of, of areas. The tariff board under Alf Rattigan. Um, forces within the Treasury Department, even forces within the Liberal Party as well, beginning to take notice, Burke Kelly um, most conspicuously. So the battle between McEwen and McMahon as it played out at the Cabinet table um, was often, you know, one of them would come up with a policy, the other would say, we don't need it, it's a mistake and it's wrong. Um, and, and a great example of that is the Australian Resources Development Bank. Um, both of these guys put up <laughs> basically the same thing the same kind of policy, but with different ideas about what was going to happen with it to get capital into the country and to, to kind of promote greater industry. Um, 
but there was leaking, constant leaking. Um, according to some sources, McEwen had police raiding McMahon's allies in the press. Um, he had certainly had people watching printeries of Max Newton. This battle was just kept going on and on and on. Um, and some of the cabinet exchanges between McMahon and McEwen over this were significant. Um, it does point to the weakness of Harold Holt as Prime Minister, mm. that that dispute couldn't be brought to heel and that so much of it played out in the headlines. Um, and it also speaks as well to the heatedness of the dispute that the Governor-General felt at one point that he had to get involved. And so you know, he actually called McMahon to a meeting and said, you know, you've got to sort things out with McEwen. And McMahon took very great exception to this um, and, and wrote about it to Holt, um, as did Casey, um, and the letters around that meeting were actually in Holt's briefcase when he drowned. Um, so it's, it's a poisonous dispute, a really poisonous dispute between these two men, policy-based but also personality in time too. McEwen just could not stand the fact that McMahon would leak. He could not stand um, his willingness to kind of, you know, his amorality in fighting his corner. McMahon would do absolutely anything to win and McEwen just didn't regard that as, as an honourable thing. And as you say, the fact that this was played out in the media and became so toxic um, was was partly down to the lack of leadership on the part of Harold Holt. And you wonder if if Menzies had been in the leadership still, whether he would have allowed that. He probably wouldn't have. He would have stamped it out because it, it, it could have derailed the the government. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, any, any school teacher will, will tell you this. The, the moment you say, look, you have to say to a student that, you know, I'll get the headmaster if you're involved, um, if you don't quiet up, um, you know the authority as a teacher's gone right then and there. Um, Holt's, you know, willingness to resort to the Governor-General to intervene is, is a shocking indictment of his inability to quash that. Mm. Um, there are signs that, that Holt recognised it eventually. Um, when McEwen differed with the government on currency valuations, he yanked McEwen in and actually set him straight, make it, made him toe the line. But it, it certainly speaks to a government that was really starting to come under sustained attack um, and sustained division. Um, and this, this is part of the reason why, if you read Alan Reid's Power Struggle, there's discussion in there about how there was concern, even after the 1966 mammoth landslide win by the Liberal Party, there was concern still about Harold Holt's leadership and mm. whether it was going to be sustainable in the long term. So... Harold Holt dies, John Gorton takes over as leader and, and Prime Minister, um, but he doesn't last long because McMahon has his eyes on the prize. <laughs> um, tell me about McMahon's role in the downfall of John Gorton as Prime Minister. It's difficult to be very clear and definite about this. Um, McMahon remained Treasurer under Gorton until the aftermath of the 1969 election, the result of which... Um, you know, it was a big swing against the Liberal Party, against the government, and afterward McMahon challenged Gorton for the leadership. Gorton afterward decided that he'd had enough of McMahon in the Treasury and so he moved him to Foreign Affairs, mm. then called Department of External Affairs. Um, famously, when, when McMahon wanted the department renamed, Gorton said, yes, Billy can have the Department of FA, he can have the Department of Fuck All. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> the, the, the two of them were certainly disliked one another, yeah. um, remarkably disliked one another. The actual individual circumstances that led to Gorton's downfall, on the face of it, have nothing to do with McMahon. It was a dispute between Malcolm Fraser, the army, and Gorton's support for the army over Malcolm Fraser that 
spurred Fraser to call for Gordon's resignation. Fraser, however, long held suspicions, and he voiced them, and I um, recount them in the book, that McMahon had actually been the one to leak the information that sparked the news reports that spurred John Gorton to support the army over Fraser. So in, in, in Fraser's telling, McMahon was kind of the shadowy hand behind this, uh, this ultimate affair. But throughout this time, McMahon was leaking. He would talk up division um, and play up the kind of disunity within the Liberal Party. Um, it's, it's very difficult to say that McMahon was definitely the, uh, the primary catalyst for Gorton's downfall. I think I would concur probably more with, with Gorton's biographer, Ian Hancock, who said that Gorton was brought down by the Liberal Party, ably assisted by Gorton himself. Um, <laughs> but, you know, at the end of the day, McMahon came out of that the winner. I mean, he was the only person left, really. By 1971, he'd been a minister for 20 years. Um, the Liberal Party were likely heading to an election defeat. And it seemed it would have been ridiculous to deny the most experienced person you've got, the most senior person you've got who's served in all of the big portfolios. It would have been silly to deny them the chance to lead the party. Um, I think it was Neil Brown who recounted when the voting was going on that it was preposterous to think anybody else could do it. Billy Sneddon? No, no. Billy McMahon is the only person for us. But he, he clearly was making enemies left, right and centre. So who were his great friends and champions in the party room then? Who, who was doing the numbers for him? Or well, maybe he didn't need the numbers done because <laughs> his, his putative <laughs> opponents were so underwhelming. Well, he, he was obviously a very good agent for his own, his own press agent in many ways. Um, McMahon was always on the telephone, famously on the telephone, all the time hence, seeking support. Hence the title and, of your book. <laughs> hence the title of the book. Um, but he he did have some vital allies within the party. Peter Housen was a conspicuous ally. Um, and at various points during his career, McMahon had the patronage of influential people even outside the party. Um, I mentioned Sir Frank Packer before, and he was obviously an enormous supporter of McMahon's. Um, during the, the Holt, McEwen kind of fiasco, Broglio, whatever you call it, Packer was very, very much in McMahon's corner um, and there were a considerable number of times where Packer made clear that if the government sacked McMahon, you know, moved him out of the Treasury, moved him out of foreign affairs, whatever, that there could be retribution made from the press. So it, it is that the nature that McMahon had supporters outside the party room. He did have some within, um, but I think most people would agree that he didn't have the support of the giants of the party room. Most of them really thought him underwhelming. Um, but at the same time, they had to acknowledge that he was, in some respects, a formidable figure as well, that he could argue his corner, that he was experienced, et cetera, et cetera. So, Patrick, McMahon's Prime Minister for 18 months, um, from March 1971 to uh, December 1972, when he loses just, really, just loses to Gough Whitlam, um, and that was the first change of government for Australia in 23 years, which... Yeah, it really defies belief in this day and age when we see governments. Well, I guess we've just had a change of government after nine years, but 23 years is a long, long, long time for one side of politics to be in power. In the, in the wash-up and um, with only 18 months as Prime Minister, he didn't have a lot of time to do a whole range of things that he might want to have done. But, but what were his key achievements, do you feel, in that 18-month period? 
Um, it's, it's a really interesting question, this one about achievements, because on one hand, the McMahon government can kind of be this cast two ways. On one hand, it had this very reactive agenda where it was just hostage to short-term interests um, and the issue of the day, where a lot of its actions are just blunders in retrospect. Um, McMahon famously was just had a disastrous kind of attempt to find a policy on China, um, yeah. trying to nudge elements of his own party and the DLP toward engaging with China, but at the same time not willing to go quite the whole way um, as the Labor Party was advocating, which of course left McMahon completely gazumped when Richard Nixon moved to engage with the PRC. Um, that said, on the other side of things, McMahon's government, even when it was reacting, even when it was being proactive, did actually have some achievements that are quite notable. And one of the most notable, I think, was the, the government's past passage of the Child Care Act in 1972. This allowed the Commonwealth government to provide money for the construction of childcare centres, as well as um, research for training staff and, and training what was going on in childcare. And that, 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 I think, is quite notable because it meant that industry became professionalised. It was an amateur industry before that. This became now professional, so you had staff who were qualified who knew how to look after children and educate them as well. Um, there are obviously other ones that are significant, but which have to be acknowledged to kind of exist in a continuum with the work of predecessors. Um, so under the McMahon government, Australian combat troops were withdrawn from Vietnam. They were all home by the end of 1971. Um, the Henderson Poverty Inquiry began under McMahon. Um, there were significant increases in education spending under McMahon. Australia joined the OECD under McMahon. Um, McMahon created the Department of the Environment, Aborigines and the Arts. Um, Australia joined the Firepower Defence Arrangements. McMahon, whatever your view of nuclear power is, he killed off the Davos Bay nuclear power reactor. Um, his government appointed Anthony Mason to the High Court. It accelerated independence processes for Papua New Guinea. Um, and McMahon, in particular, seeking to, to counter Labor's supposed political advantage in urban and regional development policy, established the National Urban and Regional Development Authority. Um, a lot of the achievements of the McMahon government, though, I think it's, it's worth saying, were kind of built over in time by the Whitlam government. Um, so, you know, the Trade Practices Act had been struck down during McMahon's tenure and McMahon passed some kind of piecemeal legislation to fill the gaps of that legislation but in the end, it was the Labor Party that passed the all-encompassing Trade Practices Act in 1975. Um, it was Whitlam who abolished NERDA, the National Urban and Regional Development Authority, and created a government department for urban and regional development. Um, it was Whitlam who pulled out the final non-combat troops from Vietnam, um, which is the reason why he's been given the credit always for, for kind of ending Australia's military involvement. He didn't really, but, but nonetheless. So... That's one of the reasons why the McMahon government's achievements have been kind of overlooked. They were reactive. When they were proactive, they were kind of built over and subsumed by the actions of his, of his um, successors. Regarding McMahon's time as Prime Minister, I think it's probably worth saying that McMahon really w was overwhelmed by the job, I think. Um, in many respects, he's rather like a barrister who kind of can handle one issue at a time, one case, he can argue that really well. But when it comes to juggling multiple agendas and priorities and trusting in the ability to delegate to colleagues and manage colleagues, um, he really did not prove very good at that. 
And one of the reasons for it, I think, goes back to his childhood, the insecurity and anxiousness that that bred in him. Um, another part of it goes to the way he had treated colleagues for so long. The division, disunity, the leaking that he had done when he was a minister was kind of visited upon him in his government. So um, it's possible to see there's enough records around to find when McMahon was Prime Minister, he regarded himself as being this beleaguered kind of figure who couldn't trust anybody to do anything. He had to do it all himself and all the reasons he was losing were not really his. Um, That said, as you say before, he, at the 1972 election, the Liberal Party, the Liberal National Party only lost office by, I think, five seats. Um, Sorry, nine-seat majority, I think it's about five or 6,000 votes spread the right way would have seen the retained government which is astonishing after 23 years and after everything that had happened. Yeah, and that's worth reflecting on too that it was a change of government and there's a you know a lot of myth mythologizing around Gough Whitlam and this you know amazing campaign it's time it's time for a change of government it's ch- time to change the direction of Australia in 1972. But it was a, a very close-run thing and, of course, only lasted um, in the end for, for three years. So, um, it, you know, that, that potentially is down to McMahon fighting. A, it, was a, it was a losing campaign ultimately, but it was, a, it was a reasonable campaign for preservation of the Liberal Party as a potent political force uh, and, uh, and, of course, then set it up for such a, a resounding victory, of course, in, in 1975. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it may be worth, I suppose, in the interest of balance, we should say that Whitlam won a huge swing in 1969, the election before that. And so in some respects, um, it, what, there was something of a two-election kind of strategy. But, but nonetheless, I think the, the result McMahon got in 1972 um, is an honourable one and much better than the mythology would suggest. Much better, much better. Patrick, I wondered if you could reflect on the issue McMahon faced um, of being a very long-term bachelor and um, this this became something of a problem for him and he, of course, ultimately married Sonia, uh, Sonia McMahon and, of course, we can't forget the images that uh, are still historic to this day and well-known of, of Sonia McMahon in the US with, with that dress. But... But McMahon was a bachelor for, for many years while a politician, an active politician, a prominent politician, but there was pressure, wasn't there, for him to, to get married. What do you think was, was behind that and, um, and, and do you think he ended up getting married just because he had to rather than because he wanted to? For the last question, I don't think so. I don't think so. There's nothing I've seen um, or read or found out or heard or anything that suggested their marriage, McMahon's marriage to Sonia, was nothing but a loving marriage um and the observations i've seen and and heard suggest to me very much that she sonia um as well as their children provided him with a considerable security and stability um in a way that he had not had in the years before that um quite a few people remarked to me that that she kind of calmed him down and supported him and there's a great example i think during the 1972 election mcmahon really put his foot in it at one point and kind of suggested that his ministers were inept and just, you know, literally suggested that in a TV interview um, and realised afterward just how much of a crushing mistake he'd made. And yet Sonia was kind of kneeling down in front of him, holding his hand, um, refusing to go to her seat on the plane so that she could support him. Um, so I, I think there's nothing to suggest that their marriage was not a completely genuine affair. Um, 
McMahon was a bachelor though for a very long time and there was a lot of rumour and, and, you know, disreputable kind of things said about this. Um, Whitlam called him a queen at one point in Parliament, Q-U-E-A-N, um, being just a bit too cute by half in some respects. And there was long rumours suggested that he was a homosexual. Um, that said, there's also plenty of evidence in newspaper reports and books that he was actually a bit of a playboy mm. um, and that he liked to, to go out and, and to be with women and, and so on. Um, after the book was published, someone actually pointed me toward a memoir by a Sydney socialite who talked about her affair with Billy McMahon um, in the 1930s. And there was a photo of a very dashing young McMahon with her um, actually printed in the book. So, yeah, that, that was a notable part of his life. But one of the things I think it's, that it gave him his being a bachelor was that McMahon could spend almost his entire time working on politics. Mm. And he was famous for working night and day, all hours of the night and day into it. Um, this is why he would call his staffers and public servants at all hours of the night, um, terrifying them and terrorising them for information and demands and things. But it, it does speak to him. He was wholly committed to politics. His yeah. was a very political life and he lived it in politics, I think. Um, which, which I guess gives you a reason why he lost the election in, in 72, immediately re- resigned as Liberal Party leader, so didn't become opposition leader. And he stays in politics for mm. another another 10 years. That's quite unusual. These days most people really try and get out as, as quickly as they can if they've lost the lost an election, lost the prime ministership. Why do you think he stuck around? Just it was his whole life. He He loved it, did he? Yeah, it, it, it was in, tremendously important to him and I think he always felt that he had something more to give. Um, when he did actually end up resigning in 83, it was largely because he felt that he just was not being listened to. Um, and you can go into the National Archives and see these huge reams of correspondence between him and Malcolm Fraser, um, him sending policy suggestions and advice and getting these very curt responses in turn. Um, so he was being ignored and that's one of the reasons why he decided to leave. He always, though, felt that he had more to give and he wanted to give more. Um, I think one thing to go to that as well is that it wasn't normal at that stage for a Prime Minister just to up stakes and leave once they lose office. Um, You know, you'll recall um, James Scullin was still in Parliament when Curtin became Prime Minister. Um, Ben Chifley stayed in Parliament after he lost the Prime Ministership. Um, Gorton, too, stayed in Parliament in the Liberal Party after he lost the Prime Ministership. So it wasn't really the orthodoxy that just because you've lost it, you were out. Um, there was genuinely a regard that, you know, you would be a source of counsel, that you were still a, a figure of substance and influence after losing. Um, but I think it, it, it is probably true to say that McMahon's later years in Parliament were not his finest. Um, he made no bones about the fact that he despaired the lack of resources and um, that he was being overlooked and disrespected. And I think this goes some of the way to why when he did retire, he kind of made this enormous fuss and noise about how he's going to produce these memoirs that were going to rehabilitate his reputation and kind of bring back um, just how wonderful he was and just how bad everyone else had been. It never (laughs) happened. He never finished it, couldn't get it done, couldn't write it. Um, But it was with considerable determination to remain at the forefront, to to still be a a public figure and to contribute that marks his years in politics. Why, why didn't he finish his memoirs? He just couldn't stick with them or couldn't write? <laughs> didn't have the attention uh, span? Or? One, one of the big reasons is that he 
had a very slippery relationship with the truth and with reality. Mm. Um, that sounds very blunt and very negative. But he was he was famous among colleagues for kind of producing these aid memoirs of meetings, talking about, you know, what had been said and what had been done, but of rewriting them to be what rather he wished had happened in the meeting. Um, and so the version of events that he wished to retail often kind of beggared belief and his writing about them was usually kind of short, sharp fragments that didn't really knit together and couldn't, he could never kind of bring it all together to make this kind of coherent work. Um, he always talked up how he's going to produce this multi-volume masterpiece, something along the lines that Churchill might have done. Um, but what is there is, you know, it, it's nothing akin to that, nothing akin to that at all. A shame for you. <laughs> as you were delving into the archives and his papers, no doubt. But uh, but you, you managed to put together a, a wonderful biography. Well done, Patrick. And it's been a delight speaking to you today about Billy McMahon. And um, I think, you know, really important for us to, to understand more about his prime ministership and, and what led to it. And, and a, an individual who did make some, as you said, very significant decisions during his 18 months as Prime Minister and and prior to that as a a very long-standing minister. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Georgina. It's great to talk about him. Thank you. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.